this episode of TCDLA Law Podcast, we sit down with Ruben Castaneda of the Travis County Juvenile Public Defender's Office to talk about a recent Court of Criminal Appeals decision affecting juvenile proceedings, as well as the Department of Justice's investigation into the five Texas juvenile detention facilities. First off, I want to say thank you, Ruben, for taking time out of your day to be here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Before we jump into today's topics, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice? I am a deputy public defender for the Travis County Juvenile Public Defender's Office. Uh, I have been with the public defender for a while. I, uh, I actually worked with them in the early 90s, early on in my career, and then I returned in 1998 and have been with uh, the Travis County Juvenile Public Defender ever since. Uh, I am uh, board certified in juvenile law and have been since 2001. And I am also a member of TCDLA since 1995. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, have you seen an increase in juvenile cases in your area? Uh, No, uh, ironically enough, there has been a decrease in uh, juvenile cases. I think that's uh, for a couple of reasons. I think uh, juvenile court and uh, probation and detention have made a concerted effort to try to reduce the number of cases. And I think that's related to reducing the chance of contacting uh, with you know, individuals they don't know. Uh, and also, uh, particularly last school year when school was mostly virtual, we get a lot of referrals. And when I use the term referrals, that's another way of saying charges. We receive a lot of referrals from school, and when children are not in school and they are learning remotely, then uh, you have fewer referrals. So uh, I think those are part of the reasons why we've actually seen a decrease in the number of cases. Wow, that's interesting. I would have thought the opposite of that. So let's jump into today's topics. Earlier this year, the Court of Criminal Appeals issued an opinion that changed the way we look at transfer proceedings and a court's decision to waive jurisdiction. That case is Ex parte Thomas. 623 Southwest 3rd, 370, uh, text crim app 2021. For those listening who don't handle juvenile cases, what does it mean for a juvenile court to waive its jurisdiction? Thanks, Aaron. That, that's a good question. Uh, waiver of jurisdiction, which is a more colloquially known uh, by those juvenile law practitioners as certification, that means that a juvenile will be transferred to adult to the adult court system and stand trial as an adult. And what typically happens at a transfer hearing? Well, let let me start with a little background of what is required uh, in order for a court to transfer a child to the adult system. And this is uh, found in 5402 of the Texas Family Code. First of all, uh, the referral has to be for a felony offense. Uh, Misdemeanors do not get transferred. The child has to be 15 or 16. Uh, as those who practice criminal law know, 17 is the age of criminal responsibility. So 15 or 16. Uh, a child can be 14 and be subject to transfer if they are accused of a first-degree felony, a capital felony, or an aggravated controlled substance felony. So that needs to happen. Now, um, and this other thing is they cannot have been adjudicated for that same offense in juvenile court that uh, would run afoul of double jeopardy. If you have a child who meets those requirements in the state, if they want to transfer him, they will petition the court to transfer him or her. So here's what the law requires, and this is important in understanding how Thomas changed some of the law. The statute is kind of vague at times, but it says it requires a full investigation and a hearing. 
doesn't say what a full investigation is. And during the hearing, the court must determine that there's probable cause to believe the child committed the offense. After all of that, if the court determines, uh, there's a, these are the two reasons for a court to transfer. The court must determine that because of the seriousness of the offense, that the welfare of the community requires criminal proceedings, or they can determine because of the background of the child, the welfare of the community requires criminal proceedings. So how does the court make that determination? And this comes to the crux of Thomas. The statute tells you that as well. It gives guidelines to the court. The court must consider the following four factors, according to 5402 of the Family Code. One, whether the alleged offense is against person or property with greater weight to transfer uh, if the offense is against a person. Two, the sophistication and maturity of the child. Three, the record and previous history of the child. And four, and I'm going to paraphrase this, it's kind of long, basically whether the child can be rehabilitated uh, in the community while keeping the community safe. If the court decides to transfer, the statute says the court shall state specifically in its order the reasons for waiver uh, and certify the action, including a written order and findings of the court. So that, that's kind of in a nutshell of what happens uh, in the certification hearing. So before Thomas, most juvenile practitioners relied on the Moon decision as the standard in determining whether a juvenile court considered all the factors before it waived its jurisdiction. The court was actually required to show its work, if you will. Did Thomas pretty much overrule Moon? Yes. Uh, Moon is no longer good law. Uh, what Moon was was a, a murder case. Uh, and in that case, the state put on a detective to make its case. And the detective basically just talked about the offense. Uh, the child put on a case and it they had like several witnesses talk about the child's disadvantaged upbringing and, uh, you know, what kind of character he has. And then they had a psychiatrist who testified as an expert who was of the opinion that the child should not be certified. So the court in its order uh, wrote out its order, boilerplate order, I would imagine. And the Court of Criminal Appeals back in 2014, when this was decided, said, well, there's nothing in the record to support any of the findings, the four factors. Because of that, it's an invalid order, and he uh, should not have been certified. And so it kicked it back. And uh, in my opinion, that was good law because we all learned in law school, or at least I did, that uh, whenever the court makes an order, the order should be supported by evidence in the record. So, uh, Fast forward to Thomas, which was just decided this year. Uh, Thomas was actually uh, in prison. He, he was in prison uh, for an offense that he committed as a juvenile back in 1994. Uh, and I suppose that after Moon came out, he probably took a second look at his certification order and saw that it was similar to Moon. So he made, uh, he appealed it uh, on a writ of habeas corpus. And uh, Basically, what the Court of Criminal Appeals did is they, uh, they basically erased Moon. They said uh, that Moon was a significant expansion of Kent. Kent is the uh, U.S. Supreme Court case saying you have to have a hearing for a certification. And that there is no requirement for specific case-specific fact findings. While they prefer it, they said, and when I read this quote in Thomas, it was kind of astonishing to me. They said, 
but it's the hearing itself that prevents the transfer process from being arbitrary, which to me is astonishing because you have a child and you could have in some jurisdiction attorneys who are less than diligent and just kind of go through the motions. And in that case, then it would be a, a sham hearing. So uh, basically, Moon has been overruled. And I should, uh, if I could just say one more thing, I, I hope this is not a trend because a U.S. Supreme Court case came out uh, earlier this year as well. It's Jones versus Mississippi, and it's a juvenile case as well. It's a resentencing of a child in Mississippi who was sentenced to life without parole. Uh, now, at the time, uh, the Supreme Court case hadn't decided, but they have since decided that it's unconstitutional to give a child life without the possibility of parole uh, by law. There has to be at least a possibility of parole. So what happened in that case, he was resentenced. The judge gave him life without parole. Didn't even consider, there was nothing in the record saying he considered the possibility of parole. And it was the same kind of thing. Justice Kavanaugh said, well, as long as there's a process there, doesn't matter whether it's considered or not doesn't matter whether there was any meaningful, uh, thorough, thoughtful process. It just matters that there is a process. So we seem to be having a trend. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that might be the case. I really hope that isn't a trend. I remember when that decision came out earlier this year, it was a pretty big blow to the court's history in recognizing that juveniles are different and should be treated as such. Now that Moon is overruled and Thomas seems to be the new standard going forward, what is going to be required to show that a juvenile court considered each of the factors before waiving its jurisdiction? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think we still need to make the record and make the state try to show that these factors are not, uh, you know, mitigate toward keeping the child in juvenile court. Uh, and with that, we can hopefully keep the child in, in, uh, in juvenile court and not transferred to the adult court. The issue is that if the child gets transferred, I don't think we're going to get much relief on appeal because of Thomas. Thomas says that as long as the, there's a reason for it, the court doesn't have to show its work. It doesn't have to show exactly why. It doesn't even have to show that it considered the four factors that the statute says it must consider. It just, there has to be a process, a hearing itself, and that's enough. Switching gears, you mentioned one of the factors in transfer proceedings is whether the child can be rehabilitated within Texas juvenile system. But last month, the U.S. Department of Justice announced it is examining whether children in the Texas Juvenile Justice Department's five detention facilities are reasonably protected, and I quote, from physical and sexual abuse by staff and other residents, excessive use of chemical restraints, and excessive use of isolation. So this could potentially inhibit any rehabilitative efforts. Can you elaborate on what prompted the DOJ to recently investigate the Texas Juvenile Justice Department? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know that you want to get me started. Um, it's, it's, uh, recently, it's been kind of the same stuff that has prompted previous investigations, and in fact, previous DOJ investigations. Uh, sexual misconduct on the part of staff uh, toward the children in, in custody, violence. Uh, I, I know that uh, there have been some arrests over the last uh, few years. Um, but here's, here's the situation. The DOJ investigating misconduct by staff at TJJD is not an aberration. 
unfortunately, in my opinion, I think it's kind of woven into the fabric of PJJD. And what I mean by that, four years ago in 2017, there was an investigation. Uh, Governor Abbott, I think, uh, launched an investigation uh, for the same kind of stuff. And you go back even further, uh, 2007, that was kind of a, a big deal that I think it made all the papers. There was some sexual misconduct going on at uh, the Piot State School. Piot is out in West Texas in the middle of nowhere, uh, where school administrators, a, a couple, uh, were accused of extracting sexual favors from children in their custody. Talk about a power imbalance. These children were there on indeterminate sentences, which means that they were committed to it. At the time, it was called TYC, the Texas Youth Commission. They were committed to TYC uh, on an indeterminate length, which means it would be up to TYC to decide when they got released. The only caveat being that at, at age 18, they would age out. And so uh, you have a child who is caught between a rock and a hard place. Do I uh, comply uh, or do I? Uh, do I fight back, which would result possibly in a longer stay at TYC? Uh, at the same time, another DOJ investigation found in the Evans State School, which was down in the valley, um, that there was violence uh, going on, excessive violence. And it also sounded like that uh, the staff was kind of holding fight clubs among the, the children who were in their custody. So, uh, I mean, you have history and uh, if you don't mind, I mean, it goes even back further then. You can go back to 100 years ago where juvenile inmate leasing was a thing, where uh, kids in juvenile system were leased to work on farms. Uh, you go back to the 1940s where a state audit at Gatesville in 1941 found open shower and toilet facilities placed in the corner of a room without any partitions. Uh, the staff was uh, called, quote unquote, well-educated mule skinners who relied considerably on corporal punishment. Uh, and the state audit, uh, I think they found that placement in these schools actually increased recidivism, didn't decrease it. In the 60s, there was an investigation of the Mountain View State School by a House Committee, uh, the House Interim Committee on Juvenile Crime and Delinquency, and they did a surprise visit. Uh, because they heard reports after one child was beaten into a coma. And they saw the legislators were confronted with evidence of abuse. They had kids with black eyes, swollen faces, bruised bodies, and they described blood-stained blood walls. Now we go into the 70s. There is a case, Modales versus Terman, which is a class action case that lasted in the 70s into the 80s, which started as a class action for children who were committed to TYC without due process. And keep in mind, this is uh, a few years after In Ray Galt, which uh, was decided in 1967, which is a seminal US Supreme Court case granting or making clear that juveniles have due process rights. And Alisa Morales is one of the named plaintiffs. She was committed to TYC without any due process. So there was a class action suit for that. But that litigation expanded when it, they found all kinds of abuse going on there. So a lengthy history, you could say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, that litigation continued on and on. 
and it was finally settled, I think, in the early 1980s uh, by uh, the federal judge who heard the case. One of my favorite judge names ever is uh, Judge William Wayne Justice. So correct me if I'm wrong, but one important distinction from past investigations and the current one is that earlier investigations were state-led, um, or is, is that not right? No, that's not correct. Um, back in 2007, when um, the, uh, the sexual abuse scandal was happening uh, in Pio, the DOJ investigated uh, the Evans School. I think I'd mentioned that. And they wrote a letter to then Governor Rick Perry uh, to report their findings. Uh, their findings included an unacceptably high degree of physical abuse of use by staff at Evans. And they also found a disturbing consistency in the use accounts of uh, the use of unnecessary physical restraint and excessive force by many Evans staff. So no, it's not the first time DOJ has been involved and, uh, you know, the way things are going, I, I don't know that it'll be the last. If the DOJ's investigation finds that TJJD has continued mistreating the children, what power does the federal government have to fix these issues? It, I, I don't know that anything will change. I think certainly if TJJD receives federal funds, there might be a, a threat to, to reduce the funds. Uh, but I don't know that that'll change. What we have to have is a culture at TJJD that is willing to accept change and willing to abide by the recommendations. Uh, but I'm sure they said the same thing back in 2007. My view is that the whole thing needs to be uh, scrapped and we need to start over because uh, history has shown us the culture of the school. And in fact, there's some quotes. Uh, I think one of the senators who was involved is Senator John Whitmire uh, back in 2019, uh, said he thinks the campuses are out of control. And his worst fear is that it might take loss of life to actually change things. And that's my worst fear as well. And I don't think we need to wait for that. I have been a proponent of scrapping the whole system and uh, reallocating the funds that go to these TJJD state schools to the local communities. Uh, and I think that would help uh, in the recidivism and rehabilitation of these children. Because if you think about it, this, these state schools are, in, for the most part, are in rural areas. And you could have a child, uh, you know, I'm in Austin, you can have a child from Austin, for example, be committed to a TJJD school out in uh, West Texas or out by uh, the Red River. And that will make it difficult for a family to be involved in the child's rehabilitation. Uh, and it'll make the child feel isolated. I don't think the model as it is, is efficacious in trying to do what uh, TJJD's mission statement is. Uh, I think we need to rethink things and put the money into the communities where these children are from. And I think that would be more effective in uh, rehabilitating and reducing recidivism. I couldn't agree with you more. If the Texas juvenile justice system is truly concerned about rehabilitating these children, it is going to have to make some serious internal changes. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But again, I want to thank Ruben for joining us and for the work he does as being a voice for children who have been or are going through the Texas juvenile system. I truly appreciate the information and insight you've shared with us. Hopefully, we can have you back on in the future. I'd be more than happy. Once again, thanks for having me.